I invite you now to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 12 through 39. Our sermon text will be verse 29. For the sake of context and for our own edification, we'll have a public reading of Romans 8, 12 through 39. If you're following along in the provided Bibles, this is found on page 944. Romans 8, beginning at verse 12. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him." For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestinated, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As far as the reading of God's Word, let's go before Him in prayer asking His blessing. Our glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for this Word. Lord, we ask that You would help us to understand it better. We pray that You would impress upon us in our hearts the truth of this Scripture. Help us to see our Savior Jesus Christ and to see how we ourselves are sons of God, children of God, part of Your family because of what Jesus Christ has done for His people. Lord, we pray that You would bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was at a conference in which the speaker challenged all the attendees to read the book of Romans once a day for an entire month. And he said that taking up this radical challenge would transform you. He was quite insistent that this was the case. He appealed himself to Romans 12, verse 2, which says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. I might ask you, what does this renewal mean, and how does it occur? Well, one principal way in which this renewal of the mind occurs is through the Word. It comes by bathing yourself in the Word, by meditating on it, having it stored up in your heart. It comes by reading it in private. It comes by reading it in your families. It comes by hearing it preached and proclaimed Each Lord's Day, indeed, it is a means of grace. Now, I took this man up on his challenge, and I must confess that steeping myself in the book of Romans had a profound effect on me in unexpected ways. And I challenge you this very morning to do the same thing. As you go home, pick up the book of Romans. Read it from beginning to end. Read it straight through. And then, tomorrow, do it again and do it for another 28 days. And I guarantee you, you will be changed. Because this is no ordinary book, it's no ordinary text, it is the very inspired words of God. God breathed this word. It is His. It is alive. And the Lord, in His good pleasure, in His infinite wisdom, has decided to transform His people by the word. That's His promise for those of us who listen and who meditate on this word by faith. Now we like to say that in the Reformed tradition. We love to say things like, the Word is transformative. It will transform you. It will change you. The Lord will build you up by faith when you read and meditate on the Word. But do we often stop to think about what that means and why is it the Word? Why did He choose to build us up this way? He builds us up in other ways. Through the sacraments, through prayer. He encourages us through Christian fellowship. But why does He transform us just in this way here? that we're considering. Why the Word? Well, it's the reading and especially the preaching of the Word here that is this particular means of grace, this way that the Spirit works in us. It's by the Word that He continues to work in us to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord uses all the means of grace, but we want to focus on what it is in the Word. We know that Jesus Christ here is our Savior. He is the one who has come to this earth for His people, taking on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh, 
who lived under the law, who subjected himself to all the pains and sufferings of this life, who died and remained in the grave for three days, but was raised again. He is the incarnate Word. And this is His Word. This Word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. And that's why we are transformed by this Word and according to the Word, because Jesus Christ is the Word. It's also why we are transformed when we partake by faith of the Lord's Supper. We participate in baptism. These are signs and seals of the righteousness that we have by faith in Christ. They're visible representations of Him. And when we hear His Word and meditate upon it, we are communing with Him and experiencing Christ in His designed way, His desired way. And it's according to the Christocentric pattern, the Christ-centered and Christ-formed pattern that we are made. Now the theme of our conference these last few days here, and the theme that I've chosen uh, to guide this sermon here in Romans 8.29, the very reason I chose this text, is because we've been focusing on this idea of the sons of God. Now, to look at this pragmatically, this topic is sufficiently broad enough to have several speakers speak about different aspects and perspectives on this main theme. But if we look deeper at this issue and notion of the sons of God, if we look at it theologically and more basically and even more importantly, exegetically, that is according to what the Word is teaching us, the Word of Scripture, you will note that the theme of the sons of God is not just a convenient topic for academic discourse. It is the very heart of salvation for what the triune God is doing in salvation is bringing glory to Himself. But He does it in a particularly beautiful way that includes His people in that same program of glorification. For His people come to share in the very glory of Christ who is the eternal Son of God. But that glory shines from the sun so brightly and it reflects off His created image. His restored and even consummated image. Those are the sons. I would say daughters of God too. But in this ancient culture, sons of God had a particular privilege and purpose. And all women too who have faith have that same privilege and purpose. There's no pecking order. There's no distinction in the family. So as I say son of God, I want you to realize This is for all of God's people, and it is a reproduction. It is a a shining of God's glory in us, and a granting of great privilege. Romans chapter 8, within it, Paul is giving us the master lesson on the work of the Holy Spirit. For it's the Spirit who brings life. But those who live by the Spirit don't just have a life. They have a categorically different type of life and a privileged life. Status, hence sons of God. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And this is all coming to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we look briefly at this text, I want to do so in three points. First, the person of Christ. Secondly, the pattern of Christ. And then thirdly, the privilege of Christ. So first, let us consider the person of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Now, there are several foundational texts that demonstrate the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We've listed several of them uh, throughout our time, and I'd be happy to share many of them with you for your own edification and encouragement. But we must note that all of Scripture is God's Word. It is His Word breathed out, and all of it is about Jesus Christ. It points to Him. It is about Him, 
and it concerns Him, and it glorifies Him. It is His Word. But one particular text that explicates an important point regarding Romans 8.29 is Colossians 1.15-19. For Colossians 1 presents for us who Jesus Christ is even before He was Jesus of Nazareth. Even before He took to Himself human nature. Who is the eternal Son of God? Look to Colossians 1 for that answer. He is the pre-existent Son of God. For it was by Him that all things were created. Indeed, all things continue to exist and they are sustained by Him, by the word of His power. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is firstborn over all creation. Not that He came to exist personally at some point in time. It's not like He was born and He did not exist beforehand. We know from this passage, and we know from John 1, among other places, that He is the eternally begotten Son of God. He is the same essence as the Father and Spirit. He is fully God, even though now He also is fully man. But because of who He is eternally and pre-existently, He occupies a particular position over all creation. He is not part of creation in His eternal essence, in His divinity. He is the Creator, the Sustainer, and Consummator of all things. But He is Lord over all creation because of who He is and who He always has been. The pre-existent Son of God. This is the person of Christ. That one person, now with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. This eternal God has become man. He took to Himself that form of a servant in order to redeem His people from their sins. In order to save you who needed redemption. And through that very plan of redemption, He not only redeems His people, He not only saves them, but He also exemplifies a pattern of life to which they will be conformed through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is our second point, the pattern of Christ. This pattern of life is nothing less than a movement from suffering unto glory. Now, for two summers during my time in college, I worked at a foundry in Rockford where my father still works. And if you go into the foundry, the depths of the foundry, which actually is not too far different from Mordor, if you know what that is. If you go into the depths of the foundry, you will note how... Things are formed. Foundries will operate by pouring molten metal, blazing hot metal. Uh, that it, 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 it's so hot, it's unlike anything you've ever been around. You, you actually want to wear sleeves so that the heat does not radiate off your skin. Foundries will operate by pouring molten metal into specially formed molds. And these molds provide the intricate contours for the shape of the desired object. And these molds are each based upon a particular pattern and therefore also one particular master pattern. In order to have the object that you desire to come out the end of the assembly line, you must begin with a master pattern. And that is what we have in Romans 8.29. Now Paul gives to us the master pattern of the Christian life. What will your life look like? What should it look like? It should look like Christ's life And Paul does not mince words, and he does not shy away when he describes it to us. He's not trying to trick anyone. He's not trying to use any new measures to fool anyone to become a member of his church. 
But Paul is telling us right up front that this is going to be hard. This Christian life is a life of suffering. Because we're pilgrims. And because Christ suffered, we too, becoming like Him, will also suffer. But that helps us to understand that the suffering in this life, in this age, is a suffering that has a purpose and a reason. Insofar as you suffer in and through Christ, your suffering has meaning and it provides context to your present earthly existence. That is totally different from any other worldview. Particularly the anti-personalist worldviews out there, which would you see this world as a collection of random facts and events. In that worldview, your suffering is just stuff that happens. And as I said in a breakout session yesterday, if that is the case, why would you live till tomorrow? Why would you go on? If there's no purpose and meaning to your suffering, why would you continue to suffer in this life? But we know the Christian worldview. The Christian world is the truth. And behind it, undergirding it, in fact, the necessary presupposition, if I'll use fancy language, of all of existence is the triune God of Scripture, the personal God who loves His people, who gave Him His own Son to die on a cross for us and who raised Him for our justification. This Christian life is indeed now a life of suffering, but it is a life with purpose. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, the suffering in this life is not going to be indeterminate. It will not go on forever, but it yields unto glory. And the sufferings that we experience now are not even worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed, not just in the Son of God, but also in His sons, in His brothers, more specifically, in the family of God. This was the glory that was the joy that was set before our Savior Jesus Christ. For the joy that was set before Him, He went to the cross, despising the shame. Why would He willingly go to the cross? It's for the joy set before Him. What was that joy? It's the glory of the triune God to be revealed in Him upon His resurrection and shared and reflected upon all of His people. Jesus Christ was born under the law. He suffered at the hands of wicked men. But He suffered because of us. And we put Him to death in a gruesome and horrific execution. But Jesus did not live His life resigned to such suffering. He did not live in meaninglessness. But like a lamb being led to the slaughter, He opened not His mouth, understanding the purpose of His suffering and understanding the joy that was set before Him. It was not as if Christ was ignorant and He was just a fool going along with these Romans who would take Him to the cross. He understood fully what He would endure. But He also understood that He needed to drink this cup of wrath down to the dregs for the salvation of His people. For without that act, without satisfying the very wrath of God, propitiating our sins and taking them away far from us, without that act of the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man, we would not be saved. 
And His glory would not reflect throughout all of creation in the way that it will when He returns. He drank that cup. He drank it all. And He died. And He remained in the grave for three days. But praise be to God that that is not the end of the story. Indeed, the book of Acts teaches us through the sermon of Peter himself that it was not possible for Christ to remain in the grave. Acts 2.24 For who He was and what He did, death could not contain Him. But He triumphed over it by being raised in His resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit who works in us now. And according to His human nature, Jesus Christ moved from that position and life existence characterized by suffering and humility unto a life of glory and exaltation. And He is now the preeminent Son both as the eternal Son of God and as the Son of the Virgin Mary who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the same Spirit who brought Him to life. That is the same exact Spirit who brings to life dead sinners like you and like me. There's a continuity. It is the same power. It is the same person of the Holy Spirit to bring you to life because of the person and work of the same man, Jesus Christ. What a privilege this is. Which is our third and final point. The privilege of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Genesis 1. He goes all the way back to the beginning. Which says that our first father, Adam, became a living soul. But he also develops that thought. And he shines the light of Christ brightly into our hearts by showing us that it was Christ who became life-giving spirit in His resurrection. Jesus Christ, now functionally identified with the Holy Spirit, has a power of life that He bestows upon His people. Not just returning us to a place of neutrality, a place of uh, uh, mutability or changeability like Adam had in the garden, but He brings us to a place and a type of life even beyond what was given to Adam before the fall into sin. He bestows that life, that spiritual life, upon you. Spirit with a gap in capital S. A holy spiritual life which is given to you. That is a life we have in Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit who now conforms you to His resurrected image. Not so that you would become little gods yourself, but so that you would look like your Savior and so that you would have a family resemblance as the people of God. What a great privilege this is. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see that pattern of life? What is the road to glory? It goes through the sufferings of Christ. Paul says that the entire purpose of foreknowledge, of predestination, the entire program of salvation was all about this. To replicate a family 
resemblance in Christ's people so that he would be the firstborn of many brothers. It's no more, it's no less. His family. This is a unique activity the Spirit does to his people. To those who believe upon Christ by faith alone. God chose you, believer, for a reason. He wants you to look like his son, first in suffering, and then climactically in resurrection glory. But we know that glory is shining through even now. For we're raised in the inner man. We have Christ's righteousness. We've been set free from our sin. We're accepted as sons into his family. But our present earthly existence is characterized by suffering. The very sufferings of Christ. Our text once again, Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think of that wonderful gospel truth. Even in the midst of your present earthly suffering, this is the meaning, it is the context in which you suffer. You are not without hope. You have a living hope through the power of the resurrection, through Jesus' resurrection, your inner man resurrection, and also your future bodily resurrection. Think of that when you suffer. God is using that suffering to conform you to the sufferings of Christ so that you too will share in His subsequent glories. That's the message of the Gospel. What a privilege this is. It's not by your works. It's not by your own effort. It's not by any intrinsic value in you that makes you particularly special, but it's because God loved you. And the reason He loved you, the reason He foreknew you and chose you is so that He would work in you to look like His Son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead for your behalf. You are an heir with Christ. And He is the firstborn. He is the elder son in this family, but you are part of it as well. And God has not only adopted you legally, He has not only brought you into this family so that you would partake of all of its benefits and blessings, but He's also changing you in a way that no earthly adoption can do so that you will actually look like the elder brother. You will be a family member in all respects. He is working that in you by His Holy Spirit. And at that day of judgment, when that resemblance is complete, when you are raised from the dead imperishable, and when you shine like the sun, because the sun is shining on you, no one will look at you and say, you don't belong to this family. You are an outsider. For they all will say, now I know you do not belong according to your own works, but you shine with the very glory of the life-giving Spirit Himself. Your name is Christian. That is who you are. It is who you are now, and even more so, who you will be. Amen.